We have always had an emphasis on missions, and I get a, the opportunity of serving on the uh, ECHO Mission Board, overseeing our missionaries serving all around the world, and therefore have had an opportunity to um, travel on numerous short-term ministry trips. By the way, I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Don Carr, for those who don't know me. So who is this guy? Brad and Rodney are away, and they've given uh, me the privilege and uh, responsibility of bringing the word of God to you today. I'm grateful for that opportunity. Anyway, uh, back to missions. Uh, I've had opportunity to travel to some of the poorest uh, last uh, summer, I guess maybe almost two years ago now, we were in Burundi uh, in Africa, and we witnessed uh, malnourishment, witnessed uh, people who had a little plot of land and grew whatever they could on it, and that's what they sustained themselves on, and therefore they lack um, certain nutritions and their growth is stunted. Uh, we were introduced to some kids, and we, the missionary that's there uh, asked us to guess their age, and we were all off by three or four years because they were much smaller than what we would assume someone would be. I've also been to Honduras a couple of times, uh, another uh, very poor country, one of the poorest in poverty there and minister in a, in a great ministry there. But I also ran across a newspaper article years ago uh, from, uh, centered around a group of street kids in Honduras. And uh, the key figure's name was Carlos. And these were street kids that essentially had to scrounge for food. Uh, they had no support. And... Um, it was a very hard life. And a number of them turned to sniffing industrial strength glue that was used in making shoes just to dull their hunger. Carlos, after he watched two of his close friends die uh, to malnourished, uh, relied so much on the glue that he realized he needed to desire food in order to survive. This morning we're going to look at the fact that for a Christian, the Word of God is essential. We're going to turn, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Word of God is essential for Christian growth. Peter, again, is writing to a group of believers who have been scattered because of persecution throughout what is today modern-day Turkey. Nero, the emperor at the time, was persecuting Christians. There's a lot of folklore about that, but... Uh, the story often goes that Nero 
uh, decided he wanted to burn Rome down so he could build it, build back better. <laughs> but when he realized what a devastation it was to the people of Rome, he needed a scapegoat, and his scapegoat was Christians, and they were brutally, brutally persecuted. And this is the group of people that Peter is writing to. He begins, uh, this passage obviously is dropping into the, not the middle, but a, a certain section of his letter. It is a turning point in his letter. In chapter 1, he begins by reminding them that they were chosen by God. Chosen by God. And they should rejoice with this imperishable inheritance which is reserved for them in heaven. And that as they endure through this persecution, it gives them assurance that their faith is genuine. He exhorts them to fix their hope on the return of Christ. In other words, their hope is not in this world. Their hope is not in escaping Nero's persecution. Their hope is an eternal hope, an eternal hope of being in heaven. They had a heavenly there to have a heavenly perspective. And in the meantime, they are to live a holy life in the fear and to love one another. This brings us to our passage. He's now going to tell them that to survive in this environment and to grow in spirituality and their Christian life, they need the Word of God. This is a transition in a number of different ways. In chapter 1, primarily, he's talking to individual believers. Even in our passage, this is an exhortation to individual believers. And directly after this, he is beginning to address the church. He addresses the bricks that are building the building, the church. And in that, he is exhorting the church how to live a holy life, how to glorify God in their lives. So again, our proposition this morning is that this passage gives us principles necessary to crave spiritual food so that we may grow in our sanctification. Again, if you're not there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 read, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's not our time together. Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, I do pray that uh, you would 
use the Holy Spirit uh, to help me communicate your word in a way that uh, will benefit those in this room. You will use the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of those who need conviction, to encourage or strengthen others. And then in all things, you be glorified through your word. Christ's name, amen. Well, we see our passage begins with a therefore. We used to tell the kids when I taught in juniors, when you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. And this is true. At the very end of chapter 1, there is an exile of the Word of God. It says, uh, this is a quotation from the Old Testament, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The flower withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. So that is, that's the closest um, verses to this therefore. It obviously points back over the entire, entirety of chapter 1, but that is the focus. Now, uh, he is going to tell them how to benefit from the Word of God in their lives, and, in as the, for, that, and for that matter, in the persecution that they are undergoing. And he begins by an exhortation of the hindrances in a believer's life that could cause them not to desire the word of the Lord. He begins with, put off, put off. Putting off um, in... Uh, in its the ancient Greek translations that we can find, has the the connotation of taking off dirty clothes. I used to be a mechanic, car mechanic, and uh, you get really dirty depending on what you're doing. You can get covered with grease, and when you're finished at the end of the day, you want to take those clothes off. You want to clean up and you want to put on some fresh clothes. Some of you might have watched uh, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. You see how covered in grease and whatever he gets. Same idea. Rick Holland pointed out that there is uh, some um, manuscripts of early secular Greek that talks about a man who fell into some icy water and immediately got off and wanted to put off his clothes, his freezing clothes. So you get the idea. It was even depicted in the very early church in baptism. As the people, as the men would come forward to be baptized, they would take off their robe, which was covered with the dirt of the world. They would be baptized. They would come out of the water. They would put on a white robe. And this is the picture, then, of of being of taking off their sin and putting on the Lord's is the depiction to take off. And then he lists some sins that must be taken off. And it begins with malice. Now, malice is um, kind of an overarching term for sin. It includes the lack of morals, 
depravity, any type of wickedness or vice. It's an inclusive term. And it's any kind of wickedness that could come into a person's heart. And we know, based on Jeremiah 19.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, and who can understand it? It is an attitude of hatred that can affect relationships. Remember again as we go through these uh, sins that Peter is encouraging people to take off, uh, he's talking about the church. He's not talking about the world. He is communicating to first century believers in a church. These sins are not exclusive to the world. They, in fact, uh, are very infected in the church. He's concerned about any type of sin or wickedness. And then he lists deceit. Deceit, cunning, treachery, using deception to obtain a goal. You know, we don't have to go any further than Jesus to look at this. We start with Abraham, who twice deceived leaders of a country that he was afraid of, saying that his wife was actually his sister, Deception. Jacob tricked Esau, his brother, out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Rachel, his mother, helped Jacob deceive Isaac into giving him Esau's blessing. But eventually Esau met his match with Laban, who gave him uh, Leah instead of Rachel for a wife. This is all in the family. (laughs) all in the family. But if we were honest with ourselves, we all lie from time to time. We may tell half-truths, we may tell white lies. I dare to ask how many of you have been brutally honest when someone asks you about their new outfit or hairdo, or does this outfit make me look fat? No, of course not. Of course not. And these are things we have, to be, we have to be cautious of. We have to be concerned about. Next is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And these two verbs are plural, I guess hypocrisies, we could say. Trying to be something you are not, or someone you're not. The term comes from the Greek theater where they would use masks to depict the individual they were trying, they were acting out. And because uh, all Greek theater, uh, the actors were all men, this would particularly come about when they act, they would pretend to be a woman. They would have a woman's face. It would not only give them a deception of someone other than they are, but the mask itself also altered their voice. So they even sounded different. 
In Jesus' time, he accused the Pharisees and the Sadducees of being the hypocrites, trying to portray themselves as holier than the rest and lifting themselves up. Peter himself was confronted by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 because he would not eat with the Gentiles when the Judaizers were around. Today we have the internet. So I know Facebook is kind of out now, but you know, you can portray yourself any way you want on Facebook, right? You can put a fake picture up there, uh, your fake um, identity. Uh, you can portray yourself in lots of different ways that aren't true. They are, you're being a hypocrite when you portray yourself as someone you're not. Or, uh, anyway, you get the idea. Next he lists envy and jealousy. Envy, jealousy. Unfortunately, again, jealousy is no stranger to the church. People are often jealous or resentful of others, their spiritual gifts, their positions in the church. People like the showy gifts. People often are jealous of those people that are up front, right? And 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18, deals extensively on this issue. Galatians 5 we find envy and jealousy associated with some of the serious offenses in strong language. Cain, again back to Genesis, committed the first murder out of envy and jealousy. But when we're envy and jealous what the showy gifts are, we're not considering what the Lord is looking for. The Lord is concerned about you serving in the capacity that he's given you. Not everybody is going to have an opportunity to display the showy gifts. Some of us who have been around for a very long time remember Mrs. Clint, who taught second grade Sunday school for I was going to ask their, her son, who serves as an usher, exactly how many years. It was over 80 years. She was 103 years old. She was still climbing the stairs to the second floor of the second grade Sunday school classroom. In heaven, many of us will be behind folks like Mrs. Clint. So we shouldn't be striving for the showy gifts. We shouldn't be striving for those things that um, may be impressive to some. But we should be striving instead to be faithful, faithful servants, serving the Lord in the capacity that he has given us. Next is slander. 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 
evil speech, defamation. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue and its power. One of the most powerful passages on the tongue come from James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it sets on fire set on fire by hell. Later in this book, Peter will write, Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Peter quoting from Psalm 34. Now all of us are aware of the forest fires that have taken place here in California and the devastation that it caused uh, last year or a couple of years ago. There were a couple of uh, tracks of homes in, was it Heavenly Valley, that just was wiped out by a flame. Many people died, couldn't get out. It's devastating. Forest fires are devastating. And yet, we're not as careful with our tongue as we should be a campfire. Our tongue can cause a world of iniquity spread so fast and no way to get it back. Once it leaves your mouth, it's on spreads and you cannot retrieve it. It's gone. It's a terrifying picture, terrifying of what the tongue can do. So again, our job is to put aside these sins. And again, he's talking, Peter's talking to the church. Often we think about these types of sins uh, being part of the world, and certainly they are a part of the world, but they are not absent from the church. Again, we all have a sinful heart. We have been redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit. We are able to fight against sin, unlike unbelievers. As long as we're here on earth, we're going to be battling against our sinful flesh. We're going to be battling against the sin that indwells, and we're going to need to have the Word of God in order to uh, combat that. This takes us to our main verb in this in these three verses, which is translated in the New American Standard, long for, to long for. This is actually a very strong verb with a preposition. could be translated 
long for very greatly or crave an intense, it's an intense desire. More than simply longing for, this is an intense, intense desire. The object then of our desire is the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. This in scripture, in this part of scripture right here, is talking about the word of God and the fact that it is pure, that it is undefiled, it is unadulterated, it's uncontaminated, pure. The word of God has no impurities. And we are to crave the word like newborn babes, like newborn babes. And, of course, any parent knows when the baby is hungry for its mother's milk, it will do anything in its power, which is limited limited into fussing and crying and screaming and doing whatever a little baby can do to alert its mother that it wants food. Our pastor, Dr. MacArthur, writes in his commentary, I've heard him say it from the pulpit, that if the infant had the physical ability, it would throw a brick through the window (laughs) to get his mother's attention that it was hungry. So in other words here, our responsibility is to put aside our sin in order to the Word of God, in order to crave the Word of God. So we have to ask ourselves, do we crave God's Word with that kind of desire If not, we need to ask ourselves, why not? You know, is there sin that we have not yet put aside? Or perhaps you're simply not obeying the command to crave the word. Maybe you think you're too busy. That's a very common Excuse in our society, we're all very busy. That in and of itself, I think, is of the busyness of the world. But we are to crave, and we are to put off, and we are to fulfill, fulfill the commandment, the strongest commandment, the main commandment in this passage, to long for, to crave the word of God. There's a result to us craving the word. This is not a commandment that you may grow in respect to salvation. So the interesting thing is there is never a command in Scripture to the believer 
to become more sanctified. Become more sanctified. No. No, the command is put off sin, put on the word. We have no more to do with our spiritual growth than the baby does when he consumes the milk. He just grows. And that's the same for us. This is a passive verb, meaning we have, it's not an action verb. We, we don't take part in this. We put off our sin. We put on the Word of God. The Holy Spirit works through our spirit to grow us in sanctification. This is a part of sanctification, the sanctification process we do not take a part in any more than the baby takes a part in the growth after taking its mother's milk. But we are to grow in sanctification, and therefore we are to fulfill the commands that are a part of this passage, part of what it's asking us to do. There's a third verse. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And just to say, uh, the if is not a question. It's just as easily transferred as since. Since you are a believer. And again, it calls into question that if this is not you, whether or not you're a believer, whether or not you have submitted to the God Jesus Christ. You see, uh, Peter is writing to people, as I pointed out earlier, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, Obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So the entire Trinity here is involved in salvation. The entire Trinity causes a person to have a new heart. And again, then we have um, assurance of our salvation as we endure the um, stresses of life, the, the persecution in this case, the trials were put through. This is not the first that Peter puts this verb form together in verses 13 through 16. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your, the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you, are, you shall be holy because I am holy. The main command in this passage is to hope. To hope. We don't, we don't consider that an action sometimes. We, we consider it a feeling. But in this passage, it's a verb, and we are commanded to hope. 
And the way we have hope when we're undergoing the type of persecution that these folks were undergoing, the way we can survive that is by preparing our minds for action. And the word there describes an Old Testament saint that has a long robe, and he's about to do some work, whether he's a fisherman or a farmer or has to run, whatever it is, he has to take up the loose ends of his robe, tie them up so that he can go about his business. In the same way, believers, we have to take up those loose thoughts that go on in our mind, right? The what-ifs. The what-ifs. We have to get a hold of those, and we have to think about, we have to fix our hope on what is true, on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, our salvation. He has a heavenly perspective. Throughout this whole passage, he has a heavenly perspective. He's not telling... You wonder, Peter is writing to these people that are under severe persecution, and yet he doesn't seem to say, poor you. I'm sure he does have concern for them, absolute concern. But his answer to their problem is to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in their faith, to endure these trials, to look, to have a heavenly perspective. As he can't do much about the circumstances, but he can help them grow in their sanctification. He can help them become more uh, strong in their faith. So again, again, if this if this is not you, you don't have a desire for the word, to crave the word. If you're quite comfortable being in the world, and there are folks in this church, we understand that, we know that, that are not believers. I, I was counseling with a gentleman yesterday, and uh, we finished our counseling session, and he went home and found some things on his wife's phone that indicated she was interacting with another man, and he confronted her about it, and she said, well, I'm not a believer anyway. I've been pretending all these years. Devastating. Devastating. So all of us, as I said before, we're all sinners, all destined for hell, and it is only by repenting of our sin and placing our faith on the work that Christ did on the cross that we can have eternal security, that we can have faith that we will be with him in heaven, that we have the ability to put off sin, the ability to take the word, to consume the word, to grow. So this is a very important part, verse 3. It's almost like you want to skip over it, but it's a very, very important part. 
Christians, for Christians, God's Word is the spiritual food. Spiritual food is a very vivid picture. The Word, the, the word of God is brought to us in word pictures. We don't want to end up like those in Burundi, stunted in our growth because of malnourishment, stunted in our spiritual growth because we're not consuming the Word of God. Maybe we are, but not to the degree that we should. It's amazing to them for counseling. Of course, the first thing we do is find out about their devotional life. You would be amazed how many people who attend church here on a regular basis are not in the Word. And yet that's our food. That's how we grow. Otherwise, we're stunted. Nor do we want to be intoxicated with the world like those poor kids in Honduras sniffing glue to the point that they were not hungry for real food. If a believer then gets intoxicated with sin and stops taking in spiritual food, then their sin is no different than sniffing glue, deadening their appetite for the Word of God. Exhortation, if that's you, what's your glue? What is it that you're craving more than the Word of God? What is it you won't put off and fulfill the commandment to crave the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the exhortations that are given to us in the Word. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to allow us to put off sin, that we may crave the Word of God and grow in sanctification. We thank you, of course, for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, I ask that the Holy Spirit would this word, use the word preached today in the hearts of all those that are here today to encourage, to challenge, to convict. And lives would be changed and you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.